We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 166 today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Orkney Origins and Scarabray with Laird Scranton. Uh, you can check Laird's books down below. I have the link. If you don't know who Laird is, he's an amazing author, researcher. Uh, he um, He's big into comparative cosmology of the ancient people, uh, specifically the Dogon tribe. So check his stuff out. We've done three episodes with him previous to this episode. Uh, he does have a uh, new book out called Tracing Orkney Origins and uh, also a more uh, or a somewhat recent book, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients, which we did a, uh, a podcast on with him last time, which was very interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, so you can check out his stuff down below. Also check out our website, mindescapepodcast.com. And uh, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Mindscape podcast. I just uploaded uh, an episode with Randall Carlson that we did a few days ago, and I just uploaded another one with uh, Dr. Gregory Little on Ancient American Mounds, which was really interesting that we did yesterday. So go check those out for just $2 a month. You can get access to that. And one more thing, head on over to Indra's Web. Go to indrasweb.org and sign up to get an alert when the app goes live. Uh, we'll probably going, uh, be going live with it soon because uh, we were just waiting for the media stuff to die down. Um, and now people can focus on the bigger questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? And where are we going? So, uh, And that's it. So welcome back on the show, Laird Scranton. Well, thank you very much for inviting me back again. I always enjoy talking with you guys. Appreciate Absolutely. It. And uh, I, I wanted to have you back on because we haven't really touched much on, uh, um, you know, your work on Scarabray and the Orkney Islands. And uh, you do have a new book out called Tracing Orkney Origins. Um, so why don't you give us a little bit of background on your new one and, uh, you know, if there was any new research that you discovered or any new uh, developments you discovered while uh, researching for the book? Okay. Well, um just in terms of general perspective, what it looks like we're, we're dealing with in terms of the ancient symbolic system is two eras of intentional instruction for humanity. The first one around 9000 BC at Gobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, and a second era around 3200 BC on an island north of Scotland called Orkney Island. Now, 
that's really counterintuitive because there there doesn't seem to be any immediate connection between those two sides. How in the world could a tradition that started out in Turkey have ended up on Orkney um, at 3200 BC? Uh, there was a, a BBC documentary that, that came out in 2017 focused on or Orkney Island as a place where really interesting unexplained things were happening at 3200 bc uh, so there's a traditional perspective that out of out of the entire ancient world at 3200 bc orkney was a place where things were going on hmm. um i sort of came to that uh, incidentally um a, a friend of mine sent me a, an email with a single question he wanted to know if i thought uh, this is a this is a, a person i didn't know very well from australia asking if i thought there might have been Egyptian influences at an ancient a Neolithic village called Scarabray on Orkney Island at 3200 BC. Well, at the time he asked the question, I didn't know anything about it. I had no knowledge of Scarabray. But I followed up on the question. I thought 3200 BC is a little early for the Egyptians to be sending out expeditions to Scotland because dynastic Egypt doesn't even appear until after around 3000 BC. Hmm. Um, and I, as I was researching the Orkney scene, I was realizing that, that there's not very much evidence to even hang a, a theory on there, not compared to Egypt. You know, Egypt, you trip over uh, an artifact every every two feet. <laughs> on Orkney, all you have to work from is some architecture, um, a series of megalithic sites that were being built at 3200 BC, the first, the first ones in the UK, um, some archaeological evidence from these this little village, um, some naming conventions, so some language and things like that. Uh, you don't have inscriptions, you don't have temples, you don't have art, uh, endless art. Um, you don't have, uh, as I said, written texts of any kind. So um, I finally found a foothold, the connection. My, my perspective was that I was seeing ancient Egyptian influences on Orkney. And in that era, I know the Dogon tribe in Africa look to have also been uh, very closely related to the Egyptians. So I was imagining that what I was going to find were Egyptian and Dogon influences on Orkney Island. Instead, what I found was the reverse of that. I discovered that there were several compelling reasons to think that the influences actually flowed the other direction. And the foothold into that was that all of the original houses at the Scarabray village, this is, this is the first farming village in um, the United Kingdom. It's a cluster of like eight houses. All of those original houses were built to a single plan. And that plan happens to match a Dogen house plan, a stone house that the Dogen build. And the Dogen say there's, there's symbolism associated with the house. The house is meant to represent the body of a sleeping woman or a sleeping goddess. And so as soon as I found that connection, I mean, I understand that the researchers on Orkney have no idea where that house plan came from. They have no local uh, Scandinavian or European type connections to that architecture. So the fact that the Dogen did now opened the door to considering other Dogen cosmological uh, references and Dogen language references and ancient Egyptian uh, language references and so on. And when you start looking at examining the Orkney stuff in terms of those, suddenly all these mysteries that nobody could explain become evident. Um, 
you understand why the word uh, place was named what it was named on Orkney because the word is an ancient Egyptian word that means the thing that that they named. <laughs> um, so I came around to the point of view that Orkney was a pivotal place. This was um, uh, a few years ago. This was like um, probably four or five years ago at least. Mm-hmm. Um, since that time, I've come to understand that Orkney was a hub at 3200 BC for a lot of the ancient, the classic ancient religious stuff that we're we're trying to research. Not in an incidental way. There is abiding nostalgia that we can see in any number of ancient cultures for Orkney at around 3000 BC. That's like someone has this this great nostalgia for Orkney at 3200 BC. Uh, we see it in ancient Egypt. Their choice of architecture and placement of, of architecture at Abydos in Egypt during the first dynasty replicates what we had on Orkney. We have um, a burial burial cemetery deliberately set in view of two mountains that are just like two mountains that can be seen from Orkney. Uh, even the name Abydos, uh, according to Om Seti, rested on an Egyptian term, Abdu, which meant the desired mountain. It explicitly was cited because of that mountain. And the burial chambers, which the Egyptians say represent houses, took the same form as those Scarabray houses and the Dogen house. Um, There are many, many other reasons in Egypt to see um, nostalgia back to Orkney in that era. But it doesn't stop there. You have abiding nostalgia in Hinduism. You have direct Orkney influences on Stonehenge in the UK. We have direct influences on pre-Minoan Crete at around 3000 BC and the Aegean at around 3000 BC that extend into ancient Greece a thousand years later. Mm-hmm. We have um, Buddhist references that connect to, to Orkney. Uh, so Orkney has ended up becoming a very uh, pivotal site, a pivotal place for me to try to understand. So they believe so, uh, uh, Orkney is the origin. That's where those are the builders of Stonehenge and Avebury and maybe what, like Newgrange even? or uh, the, the, it's, it's traditionally understood now at this point that the megalithic tradition in the lower UK began on Orkney. Hmm. Now, we can tie that more intuitively because the first stone placements at Stonehenge replicate the Ring of Rodgar on Orkney in terms of size, number of stones, how they were placed, and so forth. And just next door to Stonehenge, at a place called Durrington Walls, someone built a stone house that is an exact replica of one of the later era stone houses at Scarabray, down to the stone placement of stone furnishings, down to the dimensions of the house, the layout of the rooms, and so forth. Uh, the guy who figured that out, uh, uh, an archaeologist named Mike uh, Parker Pearson, had had a previous um, project on on the Orkney Islands, so he recognized the connection between the two house plans. But you have both styles of Orkney pottery at Stonehenge, you have inscriptions that match uh, incised stones at at Orkney at Stonehenge. Um, You have a second stone house that matches the same plan just north or just um, outside of Avebury. 
you have another house to the same plan in Wales at the at the um, stone quarry site where they think the blue stones were quarried. Hmm. So someone with stoneworking skills was intimately involved at 2600 BC with all of that megalithic construction at at Stonehenge. Yeah, I think Stonehenge, we just did a archaeology news update episode and they found the origin of I think all of the Saracen stones except for two, which it was like 20 kilometers away, which is still not close. I mean, that's a uh, right. point the feet. Yeah. And uh, some of the stones we know were moved from Avery, uh, later stones. Um, a lot of the, the archaeological perspectives on how agriculture and other things uh, came to the United Kingdom tie out with Orkney in terms of timing and in terms of what the elements were and where, where it looks like they came from. Now, the, the problem on Orkney, there has never been a theory for about uh, regarding who the original farmers were on Orkney who arrived sometime after 4000 BC. And the reason there's no theory is because there are lots of sort of founding elements on Orkney. Um, that people have tried to trace, like the architecture of the house where they can't find any relationship to any anything nearby in Europe or in Scandinavia. But a lot of the founding elements, we have really ancient um, grains, for example, domesticated grains, and we have really ancient forms of sheep and cattle. Um, we have maybe a half dozen different elements where through DNA and other kind of testing, they can demonstrate that that breed of cattle, that breed of sheep originated in the area of Gobekli Tepe uh, sometime before 6000 BC. What about... The is that the researchers have all looked at just one item at a time. And they look at the item and they say, well, yes, we understand that the grain was domesticated in Turkey, but all the domesticated grains started there. So it might have made its way to Orkney through any number of paths. It could have come across Europe or it could have come across uh, the Mediterranean. It could have come any number of different ways to get to Orkney. We don't know who the people were who brought it. What about the surrounding areas? So, like, obviously we know about Doggerland and um, they found artifacts and channels and carved deer uh antlers and different things um is it something that maybe those people were there a lot longer and they just got trapped there after the younger dryas and it just kept getting you know something like that or could no, they, they they can preclude that they can demonstrate that that can't have happened based on some of the species that were there for with these farmers there's a breed of red deer that couldn't possibly have been they know for sure wasn't there before okay the other era and couldn't have possibly gotten there by itself too far to swim um it had to have been brought by boat by sea by someone do they think that there's other sites under water there too from you know uh like off the coast or anything like that possibly more right there could well be because all up through the hebrides the to the west of the united kingdom um it's understood that most of the neolithic sites are underwater that the sites they're seeing are later ones, but only because the islands have sunk. Originally, there were several large islands. Now there's a chain of smaller islands. And it's brutal there, right? It's like windy and the weather's very harsh. Right, very harsh right now. But there are indications that it might not have been that way back in the Neolithic times. It might have been more hospitable to, to people. So 
the thing that I noticed was we're not dealing with just individual items, original artifacts or original items like grains and animals on Orkney at 3200 BC. We're dealing with several distinct clusters of elements. We have some that are agricultural, some that are architectural, some that are linguistic, some cosmological, some relate to burial practices and civic practices. We can demonstrate that each of those clusters of elements also originated in the Near East, in the area of Turkey, area of the Fertile Crescent, at a, sometime before 6000 BC. Not only that, we can also demonstrate that those clusters moved hand in hand with each other by a particular path to arrive at Orkney. And being able to say that, now we have po a positive way to trace um, and to a positive way to assert who those farmers must have been to have brought these clusters co in a coherent form all, the, all that distance across um, the Mediterranean. And so what my book does is sort of track it by island by island. Um, the researchers in the Mediterranean flatly understand that someone was deliberately colonizing the major islands in the Mediterranean for agriculture. On Crete, for example, there's no history whatsoever of anything prior to Neolithic settlement there. And the Neolithic people who settled there brought with them were in possession of domesticated plants that there's no undomesticated version of on Crete. Mm. They had to have brought them from a distance. Now, the cluster of elements that that's, I'm tracking across these islands is the exact same set of elements that we see starting out on Orkney. Mm. And they aren't just an incidental set of elements. This is, it, for instance, agriculturally, they brought just the plants you'd want to bring to be able to survive in a new climate, whatever that climate was, and just the animals you'd want to bring to help prepare the ground for cultivation of plants if you were deliberately doing that. This was a very carefully planned effort. And it didn't succeed so well on some of the Mediterranean islands, but it succeeded wonderfully on Orkney. Um, so that's sort of the perspective. Um, in the era just contemporaneous weather just immediately before Orkney, we see virtually all of the same elements that established the Orkney tradition on Malta, mm -hmm. alongside a megalithic stonework tradition that has a lot of things in common with Orkney. There's a, a site on Malta called Hagar Quim. Mm -hmm. And in the Maltese language, Hagar Quim means standing stones. And so I thought, well, I know how the mindset of these people work. This is a very nostalgic group. Let's reconsider an ancient name for Orkney. There's an, the, one of the ancient names for Orkney was Orknijar, or Orkneyar. And so I went to a Faroese language dictionary, which is the, the ancient language of Orkney that I found the most uh, connections to. And I discovered that the word Orca means to endure or to stand, and Kajarni means stone. Hmm. So Orkhajar is the same meaning in the Faroese language of standing stones that Hagar Quim is in the Maltese language on Malta. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Do you remember the, one of the first times? Do you remember one of the first times I think we had you on? I brought up a picture of some Naragi structures from Sardinia um, that looked very similar 
to what you were, you know, your, from your pictures on uh, Scarabray and your books and stuff like that. Um, now, do you think that that was just happening all over the place? Because if, even if you look at, like, um, you know, they're, they're uncovering all these, um, you know, artifacts and sites and the Cyclades, and if you look at the uh, Cyclades art, like the art that was being uh, produced there, along with the art from the Naragi on Sardinia, along with some of the stuff from Gobekli Tepe, they actually kind of look pretty similar, these humanoid right. figures that are not really distinct yet, but you get the basic shape. Right. Well, it's a complicated perspective of what happened here. And by tracing it the way that I'm tracing it, you see when certain elements turn up along the pathway. Hmm. We know what the pathway is because of a unique animal on Orkney called the Orkney bull. Uh, one of the things the BBC group... That's like a little mouse, decided, right, or something similar? It's a little, yeah, a little mouse. It's like a field mouse. Now, archaeologists routinely use the, the migrations of mice as a surrogate to, to tell them where the people went because the mice never stray further than a few a short distance away from where people live. So if you know where the mice went, you can tell where the people went. Um. So there are studies that have been done to trace where the mice went. Now, in the, in the BBC documentary I was talking about, they cited a, D, a DNA study on these voles. Um, a group was trying to tie the Orkney bull to any other species of bull that was in the nearby neighborhood um, of Orkney in, in Europe or in Scandinavia. They weren't able to turn up an exact match the two closest matches they found was one in Belgium, which is the one they touted as being correct. But there was a second match that was just as close that was along the shore of the Mediterranean. Hmm. What they didn't do was they didn't test, despite the fact that we have all these other elements on Orkney that we know tie to, to ancient Turkey at 6,000 BC, they didn't choose to test a vole from the area of Turkey. Hmm. So I found a candidate bull there that outwardly resembles the Orkney bull. I contacted the the scientist who did the DNA testing. He's a, la a lab technician at SUNY Albany, who which is up the street from where I live. I asked him, "Do you know did they did their search for the Orkney bull extend as far as Turkey?" And he said, "No, it didn't. They stopped much much nearer to Orkney than that in Europe." Hmm. Okay, so. The studies that have done to trace the, the motions of that bowl out of Turkey illustrated for me what the likeliest path was for transmission of the Orkney tradition across the Mediterranean, and that's the path I followed for my book to from um, just south of Gobekli Tepe at um, sites like Ugarit across to Cyprus at around you know seven or 8,000 B.C., then on to Crete by around 6,000 BC, then on to Malta by around 4,000 BC, and then on up through the Hebrides to Orkney. Mm. Now, there were also some side detours made. Somewhere in there, prior to the Maltese tradition, it looks like a group of the, from the same contingency went to Elephantine. It looks like there was instruction being done at Elephantine because we have symbolic elements on Malta that first appear on Elephantine. And we have symbolic elephants, uh, um, artifacts or elements on Malta 
that um, the first appear on Malta that we see turn up on Orkney. Um, in ancient Crete, we also have elements that later turn up on Orkney. But then inexplicably, we have certain forms developed on Orkney, like the, uh, the form of a beehive tomb called a Thulos tomb in the Aegean. Yeah, that's that uh, Cly Clytemestra's tomb is uh, Tholos, I believe. Right. Well, then in the era just following the Orkney instruction, we see that those kinds of elements appear back on Crete. Hmm. Dogen tell us that the dynamic of instruction was to, to take groups of initiates, to sequester them at a remote location, instruct them there, and then send them back to re-educate the people in their homeland. So... There's a perspective from which Neolithic people from Crete, who looked like they were educated on Malta, were the ones who founded the tradition on Orkney, and then some of them returned back to Crete. So yeah, because I mean, the the Mycenae and the Mycenaean culture was until what 1600 ended, roughly 1600 BC. So, yeah, I mean, you, you could definitely see probably a lot of the influence leading up to that. And, um, yeah, it is amazing, though, how a lot of these structures are similar. And the way you approach it, I really like. It's obviously very uh, John Anthony West and Schwaller de Lubitz, and you're using building structures, almost like Scarabray is almost like you're kind of a temple of man in, in, in a way, you know, because well, th those houses are those houses from my perspective are a precursor to the temple of man concept. The idea that we're expressing uh, biology in architecture, except it's temple of woman, right? It's the sleeping goddess in your work. Right. But that goes along with symbolic reversals that happen worldwide across cultures um, starting at around 3000 BC, the, the most obvious one is the predominance of um, a matriarchal culture in, arch in archaic times that gets supplanted by a patriarchal culture in more recent times. That happens worldwide starting at around 3000 BC. And there are any, any number of other symbolic forms. This is sort of, um, you can understand it in terms of uh, time zones hmm. uh, one of the examples i use is everyone on an airplane who flies across country you know most people on the plane don't know each other they don't even talk to each other but they all know when they get across country to change their watch by three hours right that's the kind of effect we're ha have we're seeing is you have a tradition that is time sensitive that the symbolism is time sensitive and so we reach a particular era, and now suddenly cultures worldwide understand, well, now it's time to rather than represent the material domain using these symbols, we now have to use a second set of symbols to represent it. So do you think, so who were these people then, in your opinion, that were, you know, building Orkney and building Stonehenge, and uh, who were they? Did, you know, did they eventually become... You know, I know that's a little bit of, you know, the research of the mystery of Scarabray and, you know, correlations to Egypt and stuff. But who do you think they were? And do you think that they evolved once they got to different regions? Right. What I see is that as byproducts of the instruction on Orkney, in the immediately following era, about within 100 years, we have agriculturally based kingships appearing 
in ancient Egypt at dynastic the, the boundary of dynastic Egypt called Taru, a second um, agricultural kingship in China called Iru, a third example of it in Ireland called Aru, and a fourth example of it in South America called Peru. And those words um, have meaning from one perspective. They relate to the four cardinal points of north, south, east, and west. From another perspective, they relate to four progressive stages of an agricultural field, from a, an unplanted field to um, a planted field to crops growing in the field to grain stored in a granary. Hmm. These are symbolic terms. I see Orkney's influences in the immediately following era on the United Kingdom, on ancient Egypt, on Hinduism, on Buddhism, um, on at the point around 2600 BC where the Orkney sites are abandoned, suddenly you see those influences infiltrating into the eastern part of the U.S. with Native American tribes or with the Hopi Indians in the central U.S., all the way out to Polynesia to um, New Zealand with the Maori, hmm. down into you know places like Easter Island. All of these traditions link back to Orkney in positive ways after around 2600 B.C. Did um, Orkney or the, the builders of Orkney and Stonehenge, do you think that they had some sort of a mystery tradition, you know, that eventually became the, you know, the cult of Dionysus or the Eleusinian mysteries or some of the other mystery schools that you see popping up around that time? Absolutely. And those mystery schools all tie together positively based on some overreaching, overarching themes that tie out across that whole span of millennia. Hmm starting in the Near East and expressed on Orkney and then expressed again in Crete and ancient Greece and places like that, uh, expressed in ancient Egypt. And it's all the same tradition. It's all what we're familiar with as the Osiris tradition. Mm -hmm. The symbolism of Osiris is cosmological. It's um, unity to multiplicity. It's a, a cycle. The idea of something that's unified being dismembered and then after a period of time coming back together and reunifying that's the dynamic of energy between non-materiality and materiality and it's expressed in any number of very very positive ways among these traditions one of those is on orkney there's a long-standing um what looks like a sporting event that happens every year it's the the central holiday of orkney it happens in kirkwall around uh christmas time and what the tradition involves is, well, the, the, the backstory of the tradition is so old that nobody re positively remembers where it came from, but there, there are two myths or two storylines that they, they try to relate to explain it. Um, what happens with the, the sporting event is that two teams form based on whether a person was born um, south of a gate on Orkney, which is called up, Upper or Uppy, or whether they're born north of the gate, which is called Down or Dooney. And these two groups stage a fight over a leather ball with a, uh, uh, with a cork center that I is know. symbolic of a head. And the fight gets 
ha has no rules and it gets it tends to get so out of hand that people are actually um, injured and sometimes killed. It's the first rugby match. Yeah, I was going to say this. <laughs> now, you go back to dynastic Egypt at Abydos and Sir E.A. Wallace Budge describes what the annual festival was of the Osiris drama at Abydos, and it's precisely the same thing with precisely the same backstory, all the same stuff. You go forward from Orkney to Crete, and there's a similar tradition called the Egdasia. In the Faroese language, oh, it's called Ekdasia. In the Faroese language, EG means egg or ball, and the word for game is dyster. So this name Ekdasia that they have no etymology for on Crete, they don't know where it came from, intuitively plays out in terms of the name of the ball game on Orkney. Similarly on Malta, you know uh, that the, uh, the famous sculpture of the sleeping woman or the sleeping goddess was found at the Hall Safliani Hypogeum on Malta. Right. Now, the viewpoint there when it was discovered around 1900 was that site was named for the village that was sitting on top of the hill that contained the caves that these, these um, halls were built in. One of the commentators in 1910 says, you know, it's a misnomer. It's not, not properly named because in the Maltese language, what that means is low-lying village. But the site was named for the village that sits on top of it. How can that be? Hmm. You go to the Faroese language and you discover that hall means cave or hall. And sofa means to sleep and ein means one. So Hal Safliene means Hall of the Sleeping One. Intuitively, the name of the site on Malta, where, where the, the actual name on Malta ties to no, no sensible etymology, it ties out perfectly with the Faroese language. Mm. Yeah, it's so this is what happens again and again, down to the names of the very early tribal groups on Crete, no etymology for where their name come from, but look at it in terms of the Faroese language, and it always plays out in terms of honored ancestor or uh, accomplished ancestor concept that is a cosmological concept that goes right with this tradition of ed initiates that are educated. Do you know if they've done any chemical analysis on like the pottery or anything found at uh, Scarabray? Be only because I ask is... You know, the new book, Immortality Key, came out showing hard evidence of spiked wine and Pompeii. You know, they found stuff at Pompeii. They found stuff in uh, ancient Egypt and some of the uh, tombs and some of the vessels and stuff like that. We're talking all sorts of different types of psychoactive compounds. So do you know if, because, I mean, that's something that really interests me is where did the, uh, who were the first peoples using psychoactive compounds, whether it be mushrooms or ergot or somehow, um you know, using these naturally found uh, alkaloids. And I know they just found a site in uh, California, uh, the first site where they actually found uh, chemical traces of Datura in a cave uh, depicting the Datura uh, flower in the cave. Okay. Um, let me start with the wine piece of that. Okay. Okay. On Orkney, the situation we have is that major megalithic sites were positioned um, at Stennes, 
is sort of a um, a peninsula of land that is shaped sort of like a bent arm, like the shape of a cubit. Okay. Okay. In direct view of two mountains. One of the megalithic sites is called, it's a pillar called the Watchstone, and it's a match for a Dogen pillar that's, that's traditionally placed outside of a village. Okay. Stennis is in view of two mountains on the island of Hoi. Those two mountains, to an imaginative mind out of the Near East, resemble two elephants that are sleeping or reclining. And their hills come down and form a gap in between the two hills, such that if you're standing at the watchstone and observe the sunset, because the mountains are to the west of Orkney, if you observe the sunset every night, at the equinox, the sunset perfectly between the two hills, like the Akhet Glyph in Egypt. And it progressively moves northward until the winter solstice and southward till the summer solstice in the backdrop, using those, those mountains as a backdrop, they gain visibility on the, the seasonal motions of the against those mountains. Now, in Hinduism, in the era following that, Hinduism says that it was deliberate common practice to, to place, to establish sites, important sites, especially religious sites, in view of those kinds of mountains that resembled elephants. And Hinduism's reason for doing that is in honor of a mythical land called Jambu Dvipa. Now, Jambu Dvipa is a compound word. Um, Jambu means blackberry, and Dvipa means island. Now, at the Scarabray village, it's understood that the residents there were making blackberry wine. The only source of blackberries in the region are on the island of Hoi, just across the water from those megalithic sites. And blackberries are so prevalent there that according to um, a more modern commentator who lives on Hoi, um, during the right seasons of the year, you can go pretty much anywhere on the island and pick your, your a basket full of blackberries in five minutes. And that people routinely used to come there to pick blackberries. Now in... The Crete tradition, it's understood that wine was originally made with blackberries, not with um, with grapes. In fact, the original form of the wine was mead, which is brewed using blackberries and honey. We also know for certain that they were deliberately cultivating beehives on Orkney at Scarabray, as they were in the lower UK. They know they had honey there. So there are similarly compelling reasons, linguistic reasons, agricultural reasons, architectural reasons, to connect Orkney intimately to the Hindu tradition that connects to this mythical land of Jambu Dvipa. Any number of other cultures also make similar references. In in the era of Elephantine, it wasn't two mountains that looked like elephants. It was one mountain that looked like elephants. Elephantine is, Island is situated in direct view of 
what looks like a mountain that looks like a reclining elephant. It looks so much like it. I one time posted a picture on Facebook of the Elephantine Island next to a picture of a, of a sleeping elephant, and it's the same contours exactly. Hmm. It, I, I found a reference from a modern-day resident at Elephantine saying, of course, we know based on where the sun's setting that summer's about to arrive. So even modern residents use that mountain as a calendar to judge the seasons. You go to Malta, Hagar Quim is positioned, and another site called Menagera are both positioned in direct view of an island that looks like an elephant, situated across an expanse of water where the sun sets behind that island the same way. At Hagar Quim, they even set um, two stones as a window, viewing window that frame that island. All the way up through the Hebrides, you find uh, Neolithic to Iron Age and later sites positioned in such a way with stones deliberately set to observe the equinox and the solstice between two mountains the way that they did on Orkney. This is, this is a thing. You even see it at Gobekli Tepe. I have a photograph from one of the enclosures taken from behind one of the enclosures at Gobekli Tepe of the sun um, either setting or rising bullet behind mountains that have the same effect. Hmm. This is one of the connecting themes that all of the ancient traditions were connected by. They all did that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so this blackberry wine—is um, it found anywhere else other than? Uh, this area or like is that the origin of it or well yeah it, it's actually that's another of the themes of the cosmology I, I at first didn't I, for, I first saw it as a loose end because um, in some cultures it's referred to it, it, the how can I say this the cosmology is expressed in, not in terms of blackberries as we know it but of, of mulberries which are a form of blackberry there's a, okay. a Chinese mulberry tree now, I knew that the Dogen had a tradition connected to mulberries, but the the upshot of that was sort of lost to the Dogen. They, they knew that it was important. I could see that it was a loose end in the Dogen tradition. I didn't know how it connected symbolically. But then when I started writing about ancient China, they preserved all the details of the mulberry tree. Very important concept. Hmm. And Hinduism... The concept connects to blackberries and to wine. We know that because of the name Jambu Tvipa. On Crete, scholars absolutely know that the wine tradition there started with blackberries and honey. Um, so yes, absolutely, the, the same tradition carry, carries forward in all the same cultures I'm tracing the cosmology to, or many of them. Fascinating. Um, so when you look at uh how the people there um you know got there and everything and then where they kind of went 
do where do you think they came from to get there like where do you think the people that you know built the immediately immediately they pretty much have to have come from malta okay but there are reasons to understand that it looks like a group of people from crete initiates from crete who are educated at malta in the cosmology decided to found the tradition on orkney and i'll give you an example of why i think that's true one of the overarching themes that connects this entire set of traditions as i said is the the osiris tradition which in the near east connects to um a god ashar or goddess Ashera. Ashera was the consort of the canaanite god el who was a a contemporary of the god Yah, the light god Yah, who survives in, in, in Judaism. El was a god of space. There's a naming tradition for tribes in the cosmological system I'm dealing with, where the tribes named themselves for some aspect of the cosmology, and they did it typically by combining a word that means to celebrate, sakai, S-K-H-A-I in Egypt, with a word that's cosmological. In um, in Tibet, it was Naki or Naksi. The word means celebrates Na. Na is a, uh, a syllable that refers to the feminine uh, Na material. Mm. On Orkney, the Scarabray village overlooks a bay called the Bay of Skael. Skael means celebrates El, which immediately told me that it looked like I had a, a counterintuitive connection to a guy in Now, Asherah, who's the goddess who goes with that, she's the goddess whose symbolism connects to Osiris in Egypt. In myth, one of the things that Asherah does is after she and El are married, she tosses her crown or her diadem up into the heavens and creates the constellation of the aurora borealis which is um the the crown constellation the northern crown constellation the bay of scale on orkney takes the same shape as that constellation mm. the word one of the Faroese words for crown is scali so it looks like that mythological tradition also connects to Orkney, the idea of tossing that crown up. The problem is we have a similar bay at, on the island of Naxos near Crete, whose name also means crown, but it's expressed in the local Cretan language. It, the word is Krona. Kronos was the god who was celebrated on Malta, hmm. a god of time. Somebody asked, would you consider this to have any relation to uh, Celtic folklore, the Tuatha de Danan? Da yep, and I, I can get to that. Okay. Now, carrying forward from this Noxos Bay, the Noxos Bay is shaped just like in the same shape as the, the Bay of Scale, also named for a crown. You get to Orkney, you actually have in the Faroese language two words for crown. One is Scali which is the cosmological term for crown. And the other one is Krona, which is the Cretan word for crown. So clearly whoever named that 
Bay, whoever carried the concept of a crown forward to Orkney, had familiarity, had intimate familiarity and nostalgia for that Bay on Naxos, which is why I say the original farmers on Orkney are likely to have been pre, way pre-Minoan um, Cretans, educated on Malta because that's where a lot of the language and a lot of the symbolic elements um, appear, carried forward to to Orkney, which are then carried back to Crete, and who and that group then becomes the pre-Minoans and the Minoans. So the Minoan culture takes its roots from Orkney. Orkney takes its root from Malta, from a group of initiates who originally came from Crete. Mm. And you have a little circle there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's okay, interesting. Okay, now, the way that ties forward to the Tuatha uh, Danann is that around 2600 BC, um, okay, let's back up here. The first Scandinavian sagas Let's back up even more here. The Dogans say that in the mythical locality where they were given instruction in cosmology, it was provided to them by a group of mythical teachers called the Numo. In ancient Egyptian language, that word Numo is a compound word. It combines the word Nu, which is a term for water or waves, with a word for uh, perception, which is Ma. Hmm. Numa means waves perceived. The Dogen tell us that they're not, they're mythical teachers who taught them with cosmology were originally non-material, but they were able to materialize and take action materially. And there's actually, believe it or not, a scientific perspective that re- makes that seem sensible, or at least thinkable. So the new... There were, would have been two groups on Orkney Island during that instructional era. The Numo, who were these materialized beings, and the Dogen, who were these black African priestly people. Well, the earliest Scandinavian sagas, the Orkney, Orkney, Orkneyinga saga, reports that the Vikings originally found two groups living side by side with each other on Orkney. One was a group of very short-statured um, uh, wizards, sorcerers of very strange behavior. And the second was a group of clerics who always wore white the way the Dogen do. So dissimilar from the Scandinavians, quote, as to constitute a separate race rather than a separate profession. So the Scandinavian saga actually records what the Dogen say is true, which is that we had these two groups on Orkney Island. You go to the Egyptian language, the word nema means pygmy, mm-hmm. in short stature. On Orkney, there's a tradition of the petty. As a matter of fact, the um, uh, the, the Pickland Firth is based on the Picts who are the petty. And the pe- there are traditions in the UK that the petty were short stature. Right. So we have all, all these comparative perspectives saying that we had two groups on Orkney. Now at 2600 BC, the Orkney sites are abruptly abandoned, as are the Malta sites in the same era. And we can see that some of the people from Orkney moved south to Stonehenge because we have those direct connections. Somebody 
nostalgically recreated the exact same house plan, which means they knew knew about Scarabray. They must have lived at Scarabray. Yeah. They replicate the Ring of Brodgar, which means they must have been instrumental in the building of the Ring of Brodgar. Also about the same time, an entirely different genetic type moves into the UK in much smaller numbers, short-statured, very sturdy, strong beings, later known as the Picts. Do you so is there do you think there's any connection you you mentioned like wizards and um that's part of like the mythology uh and the legend around high brazil which would have been off the coast of uh ireland and there are a few sunken land masses that are off the coast but do you think that there's any connection to that that or that somehow plays into it absolutely i think that the group that arrived on orkney passed up through the hebrides through that western passageway waterway up and and establish certain um um sort of foothold sites on each of the major islands in the hebrides we can tell that they did it at the entryway um down in the um the silly islands uh s-c-i-l-l-y there's every reason to think that that connects to sicily as a matter of fact what put me on to malta and sicily was the tendency of people to name new sites after sites that they're nostalgic for. And so I, I saw the name Silly, and I thought that sounds remarkably like Sicily. And then I started doing some comparisons and realized that both islands give the same impression when viewed by, from a boat coming at it, approaching it from by the sea. Right. That someone might well have named the Silly Islands for Sicily. And then I went back and I ex examined all the Malta stuff and all the Sicily stuff and realized you have all these abide abiding connections between the two traditions. So whoever established Orkney was moving up through the Hebrides, establishing these various sites, which means that all through the next thousand years, there was probably ongoing connection and commerce between those sites. Absolutely, I think there's a relationship between those islands and Ireland and those islands and the UK and those islands and Orkney and Scotland. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in terms of, uh, you, obviously, you look at the etymology, you look at uh, the agriculture, you look at the animals, you look at the symbolism, you kind of look at it all. Um, is there... I mean, have you ever talked to, and I know you do talk to archaeologists and researchers and stuff, but, I mean, what do they say about this stuff? Are they more dogmatic and materialist about it and they kind of reject it or they're open to these interpretations? The, the problem in the academic world is, first, all, uh, first off, there's academic turf to be considered, which is not something that, that's really true in my field of study of alternative study. Right. So that creates sort of boundaries between disciplines and boundaries in terms of who has what theory and who is, is exploring what aspect of a thing and what they've written in the past and so forth that become sort of limiting factors on what, a, what a tradi many traditional ac ac academics are willing to hear. The second problem is that the place where my course of study leads to is non-material consciousness materializing. There is no per academic perspective from which that idea can even be entertained. Right. And so there's never going to be academic acceptance, except through crowbar leveraging 
there's never going to be academic acceptance of any of the stuff I'm talking about. I don't expect it. But there is backhanded um, um, support for it. For instance, there's a traditional archaeologist who studied the, the houses on Orkney and the pottery on Orkney, and she wrote... Uh, the traditional viewpoint is that the two styles of pottery on Orkney represented two different cultural groups. But she's saying that it looks to her as if it was a deliberate change in style that goes along with the change of symbolism on the island. This is a symbolic reversal from my point of view. She says the one style of, of pottery was only ever discovered in houses that are entered from the left. Okay. Left is symbolically matriarchal. The other style of pottery was only ever discovered in houses that were entered from the right, which is symbolically male. This is symbolic reversal stuff. She comments on it. She writes about it. She says, I wonder if there was some religious context that, that connects to this. But from her understanding, it doesn't. this pottery doesn't reflect two cultures. It represents two eras of one culture, two conceptual eras of one culture. Mm-hmm. So... Here she has written a thing that 100% supports what I'm saying without her actually endorsing my perspective. And that's what my book is filled with, is commentary from traditional archaeologists and academics that flatly make the claim that supports the thing I say has happened, even though they would never support what I say. Right. Well, I mean, obviously you've got a lot of that in this realm of ideas and exchanges the only thing that i don't understand about the whole um you know academia rejecting and it's almost like they want to play placeholder and control the narrative and everything like that um and then they poo poo everybody else and like it seems like scientists and i mean there's some there's a lot of cool scientists too but uh there are some that uh, are very dogmatic and it's almost like um, I see a lot of them disparaging people online. And now that you have the internet, you have a lot of archaeologists and people in school studying to be archaeologists, um, using their views on things is almost, uh, like weaponizing it and attacking normal people that are just curious about these subjects. And I just, I never really understood why that's the case. It's like, um, there's some sort of, uh, complex thing that's happening there almost like maybe they feel like since they've gone to school and spent all this money on a degree that they deserve respect and for people just to listen to them without questioning anything that doesn't make that also doesn't make sense to me in the terms of like philosophy of science and understanding and and playing off of each other and um you know coming together and and sharing ideas and things it's just it's it's counterintuitive in my opinion so i just i don't understand that culture and it's really really prevalent right now on online well Well, yeah everybody's everybody's wrong until they're right again type thing you know (laughs) that's right to be fair, through the series of books I've written, this is now the 12th book, there have been a number of absolutely top-notch scientists who have worked with me as sort of undercover, hmm. feeding me answers to questions I ask and confirming things I suspect to be true, who are must privately be of a similar mindset to what I'm saying because they are so cooperative in trying to get a message out there, but professionally are not in a position to be able to say it because right. it is career suicide to endorse some of these perspectives. That doesn't make any sense though. Like that's what I'm saying. Like that, 
that rigidness is so I, I don't I just I don't understand because even science is is constantly wrong. We're always coming up with a newer, better model. So if pe- people that are like hanging on this one moment in time as if it's right, it's gonna be wrong. Have you not looked into uh, you know the philosophy of science? Have you not looked into um, you know the paradigm shifting aspects of you know the whole thing? It's just it, it just doesn't make any sense exactly. to me. It, it just it really and that, and I I again I know cool scientists. We've talked to people on the show. We've had people on the show. Uh, I'm not saying that that it's about it's everyone, but again, I, it's a majority of people I see online. You know, you've got like archaeology Twitter and you've got like archaeology Facebook, and they go on there and they just take dumps all over anybody that doesn't agree with them well in in the the uh tracing orkney's origins book uh there's a a chapter that i'm talking about um how things come out of the near east uh, just following the gobekli tepe era and i quote a traditional academic researcher who in his book or his article um said, look, in my experience, every single agent culture I've ever come across makes flat claims for help or instruction from godlike groups in ancient times. And then in the next sentence, he says, it's long past time we set all that nonsense aside. Mm-hmm. And I thought, doesn't this guy know about the concept of corroborating testimony? If every single ancient culture he's come across is right. telling the same thing, why in the world wouldn't you at least entertain the idea, explore it long enough to find out where it leads? How does that, how does all of them saying the same thing imply that we now have to set it aside? It doesn't. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, everybody, I feel like (laughs) scientists just need to read Thomas Kuhn. Relax a little bit. Yeah. And read, you know, the, uh, I don't even know. I just, people, I just, again, I'm an open-minded person. I know I'm not a scientist and I don't have to use scientific scientific method and go through the process of hypothesis and theory and all that wonderful stuff. But that being said, the people that do go through those channels are, again, going to be wrong 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We're going to be wrong. We're going to be wrong about the stuff we're talking about right now. But I think you and I and Maurice and everybody listening knows that that's the case. So why, again, hang on to it and disparage people? Why not open up that that dialogue? And like you said, you've talked to some cool people while researching, and that's awesome. I think um, we should trumpet that when that happens. But I don't see it enough, and I, I hope that that's something that changes in the near future. Now, there's another factor going on here that isn't immediately obvious until you get down in the trenches of this stuff. And that is that if you can get back to the original word that was used to express a name of a place or a a symbolic concept, a name of a symbol, the name of a symbolic site, a ritual site, whatever it happens to be, those names flatly tell us what was intended to be symbolized. There's no effort whatsoever to hide it. Right out in plain language, if you understand what the syllables represent, they flatly tell you, here's what I was trying to represent. And so there's no guesswork at that level that I know when I hear a Dogen word spoken what they were trying to represent. Hmm. I mean, that. yeah, I mean, I think you do a good job and I think that some of the ones that you bring up in your books and, you know, when we've had you on the podcast, they make sense. It's not like you're really making that much of a stretch or a reach to make it fit or work or anything like that. 
And that's really the only hedge against the academic point of view is to so consistently bring things down to an intuitive match where any intelligent person looking at this thing and that thing has to agree that it matches. Right. At that point, you've demonstrated what's true. You haven't proved it, but you've demonstrated it. And that's where the potential comes for convincing um, academics in the future that this has to be right. Because I was taught by my science teachers that when you bump up against the third coincidence when you're researching a question, it's time to consider whether or not something beyond coincidence is happening. Well, so here I have a book, Tracing Orkney's Origins, that either involves sort of an endless list of intuitively matching coincidences or else there's something real there. Right. No, I, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's let's wrap it up here because I want I do want to do the Patreon segment with you for our patrons here. Uh, but everybody, go check out Laird's new book, Tracing Orkney Origins. Uh, I have the link down below the video. And um, do you have anything coming up soon? Are you working on a new one? I know you're always working on a new one. Right. I mean, I have a clear idea of what the next book's going to be about. Um, the Dogen system is a scientific system. So is Samkhya, expressly scientific. And they're talking about concepts that are very important. They're talking about root dynamics of energy, root dynamics of universes, and so forth. So the next book that I'm planning to work on and to write, and I, I know have a, a pretty clear idea of where it's going, um, is talking about the, the root energies that cause all that to happen. What is it that induced non-materiality to differentiate from materiality, and how do you get from that to waves and to particles and to collapse of the wave function and to um, electrons and protons and neutrons. Right. So that's the the next because the Dogen lay that all out and so do the other traditions. Well, we look Beautiful. forward to that and we'll obviously have you back on uh, when that's ready to roll. Uh, but listen, I want to thank you. You're always a wealth of knowledge and I love asking you questions because I know I'm going to get a no nonsense answer with um, good research behind it. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on. And again, everybody go check out his new book, Tracing Orkney Origins at the bottom. I have the link um, of the video. And um, yeah, is there anything else you want to plug? People can also go on Facebook and find Laird on Facebook. He's pretty active on there. Right. Um, I ha have a book out from Inner Traditions in July. It's only a few months old called um, The Primal uh, Wisdom of the Ancients. And the focus of that book is on all of the aspects of the symbolic knowledge tradition that reveal the hand of the group of teachers who put it together. That there are very clear-cut, very insightful choices of a teacher being made in this system. Very consistent um, techniques used to convey knowledge, to convey information, to represent things. Getting into that mindset of how the teachers thought, how this how this plan was put together, makes a whole lot of the rest of it a lot easier to understand. Mm -hmm. That's we, from Inner Traditions. Um, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Inner Traditions. They they are awesome. I uh, um, they produce a lot of great books. We've had a lot of their authors on the show, um, and uh, just really great people. Also, we did have you on when we discussed uh, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients. I think that was episode 146. I'll check, but I'll put all the links down below uh, with the other episodes that we've done with Laird in the past. 
Uh, but yeah, check out that book because that's an awesome book. And the episode we did with you was really great. And I felt like, uh, you know, it goes into, like you said, like the symbolism, the science and kind of all plays together there. So uh, go check that out. And uh, we are going to do a patron, uh, Patreon right now with Laird. And you can head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You will get exclusive content. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we did one uh, with uh, Randall Carlson. We recently done one with Sean Cahill. And I just uploaded one with Dr. Gregory Little on ancient American mounds. Um, juicy so, tidbits. Yeah, go check that out. Um, and also head on over to Indra's web uh, at indrasweb.org and sign up to get an alert when the app goes live. Uh, if you like the topics we discuss on this channel, whether it be ancient civilizations, fringe hypotheses and theories, or whatever the case may be, this is what the app is designed for. So if you're sick of you know using other platforms where you get a lot of trolling and stuff like that, we're going to try and uh, produce an environment where people can, uh, you know, like we do on the show, like escape and just learn new things and, and enjoy discourse with people. So go check that out. And uh, that's it. And uh, thank you again, Laird, and uh, we'll, we'll get you back on again soon when your new book's ready. Great. Thanks very much. You, sir. Peace. We love everybody. Stay safe out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.